Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market. Support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22. Or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Los Angeles has always drawn people in from a variety of cultures and there's good reason. Nice weather, sandy beaches, and a relaxed atmosphere that made it seem like the perfect place for the American dream. People were brought in with available work at government contractors, the movie industry, and booming construction contractors. Los Angeles overtook New York as the pop music capital in the 1970s. Bands like Toto and the Eagles were hitting the mainstream, and bands like X and Black Flag were defining the punk rock genre. In 1978, Annie Hall won Best Picture at the Academy Awards and police apprehended the Hillside Strangler. Though police had taken one ruthless murderer off the streets, they immediately had another to deal with. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris had a chance meeting where they learned that both of them shared the same sadistic desires. They both wanted to instill absolute fear in women, and they believed that by working together, they could get away with doing just that. This is Monsters. On June 24, 1979, Lucinda Schaefer, who went by Cindy, was walking down the street in Redondo Beach, California. Cindy had been in a meeting at her church that evening and was walking home at about 7.45 p.m. when a silver 1977 GMC cargo van pulled up beside her and asked if she wanted a ride. There were two men in the van, and one of them asked her if she wanted some grass. Because that's what they called it in the 70s, man. Cindy was a good girl. She did well in school and was dedicated to her church. So she turned them down. Cindy continued her walk and didn't notice that the van had gotten ahead of her and pulled over, waiting for her to pass by. When she did, a man jumped out of the side of the van and pulled her into the back. She got out a couple of short screams, but they didn't alert anyone to her present situation. Once inside the van, one of the men turned the radio up full blast to drown out any screaming. 
Inside the van was 38-year-old Lawrence Bittaker, who went by Larry, and 31-year-old Roy Norris. They had spent the day cruising around, drinking beer, smoking marijuana, and secretly taking pictures of women on the beach without their knowledge. Then they saw Cindy and decided to make her their first target. Roy taped up her hands and legs and put a gag in her mouth, and Larry drove them deep into the San Gabriel Mountains, something that would have taken close to two hours, with Cindy lying in the back of the van, bound, gagged, and wondering what these men had in store for her. When they arrived at a secluded area in the mountains, the men took turns raping Cindy. At one point, she asked if they were going to kill her and said that she would like to pray first. Larry claimed that he said, God isn't here, only devils. When the two were finished, Roy asked Larry if they had to kill her or if they could let her go. Larry explained that she could identify them, and since Roy was already a registered sex offender, his punishment would be more severe. They agreed that killing Cindy was necessary, so Larry held her while Roy started strangling her, but he wasn't able to complete the task before he had to go throw up. Then Larry got a wire coat hanger and wrapped it around Cindy's neck, using a pair of pliers to twist it, effectively cutting off all oxygen to Cindy's brain. When she was dead, they wrapped her in a shower curtain they had in the van and threw her over a steep embankment. Her body has never been recovered. Lawrence Bittaker was born on September 27, 1940, but his biological parents decided to put him up for adoption. He was placed briefly in an orphanage in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but was soon adopted by the Bittakers. His adoptive father worked in the aviation industry building airplanes, and due to the high demand of aircraft for World War II, he was constantly being moved around to different facilities. They moved from Pennsylvania to Florida, then to Ohio, and finally settled in California. Larry began committing crimes at a young age, being caught shoplifting at only 12 years old. The arrest did little to deter his behavior, and he spent the next few years continually getting in trouble for theft. Larry was very intelligent, but high school bored him, so he dropped out when he was 17. This is when Larry became a frequent visitor to the American prison system's revolving door. Soon after dropping out of high school, Larry was arrested for auto theft, hit and run, and evading arrest. He was sent to the California Youth Authority until he was 19 years old. Larry immediately stole a car and drove east where he was arrested by the FBI in Louisiana for violating the Interstate Motor Vehicle Theft Act. In August of 1959, he was sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. After he had served two-thirds of his time, he was released. Larry returned to California where he settled down and never broke the law again. No, he was arrested in Los Angeles mere months later. He was charged with robbery, and in 1961, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison. While serving his sentence, a psychiatrist determined that he had considerable concealed hostility and a manipulative nature. He was diagnosed as borderline psychotic and paranoid. Some people believe that Larry's behavior stemmed from his anger that he felt abandoned by both his birth parents and his adoptive parents. After being released from the California Youth Authority when he was 19, his adoptive parents disowned him and he never had contact with them again. He would say repeatedly in later interviews that he wouldn't have turned out the way he did if he had at least one good parent, implying that he felt his adoptive parents didn't do a good job when he was a child, though nobody actually knows what his childhood was really like. In 1962, Larry underwent another psychiatric evaluation and the doctor noted that he had poor impulse control. 
Still, Larry was released early in 1963, and two months later, he was rearrested for parole violations. He was released and rearrested for parole violations multiple times in the 60s, eventually being charged with theft and leaving the scene of a hit-and-run accident in 1967. He was sentenced to five years in prison, but was released after three. Larry was in and out of prison so many times, they should have given him a punch card. Nine sentences, and your tenth one is free. He was a habitual offender who didn't even attempt to stop committing crime. He would be released, and it would only take him a few months to be arrested again. After his release in 1970, he made it less than a year before he was arrested again for theft and parole violations. He was sentenced to six months to 15 years in prison. What's up with that sentence? What crime could you commit where it would be appropriate to serve six months or 15 years? Not surprisingly, Larry was released after three years, but he must have loved prison because he was quickly arrested again. This time, Larry had gone to a supermarket and put a stake down the front of his pants. He made it out of the store but was soon stopped by a store employee. Larry swung around and stabbed the man in the chest, nearly killing him. He was charged with theft and attempted murder, but only convicted of assault with a deadly weapon. Before the trial, Larry was once again evaluated by a psychiatrist, who reported to the court that the defendant did not suffer from borderline psychosis, but that he was in fact a classic sociopath. He explained that Larry was incapable of learning to play by the rules. He went on to claim that Larry would escalate his behavior, moving to more and more serious crimes. The psychiatrist said that Larry was a highly dangerous man with no internal controls over his impulses, a man who could kill without hesitation or remorse. Larry was sent to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo to serve his time. It was there that he would meet the man that would become the other half of the toolbox killers. Roy Norris was born on February 5, 1948 in Greeley, Colorado. His parents weren't married when his mother got pregnant, so they wed in order to avoid social stigma. Roy said that throughout his childhood, his parents reminded him often that he made them marry before they were ready to and he wasn't wanted. They showed it physically by regularly placing him in foster care for periods of time. It's believed he was sexually abused while in the care of one of the foster families. When Roy was 16 years old, he was living with his parents when he went to the home of a 20-year-old female family member. When he began saying sexually suggestive things to her, she told him to leave and then informed his father of what had happened. When Roy's father threatened him with a beating, Roy stole his father's car and drove it to the Rocky Mountains. There, he attempted to kill himself by injecting air into a vein, but he wasn't successful. The police eventually found him and returned him to his parents' house. After this, Roy said that his parents told both him and his sister that neither of them were wanted, and they were planning to divorce once they were both out of the house. Having a second child seems like an odd thing to do when you don't want kids. About a year later, Roy dropped out of high school and joined the United States Navy. He served as an electrician in San Diego from 1964 to 1969 before being sent to Vietnam. Roy was only in Vietnam for four months and didn't see any active combat. He did, however, start smoking marijuana and doing heroin. By November of 1969, Roy was back in San Diego and he quickly began spiraling into a life of crime. That same month, Roy forced his way into a taxi that was being driven by a woman and attacked her. He was arrested and charged with attempted rape and assault, but was released on bail. 
Three months later, Roy tried to convince a young woman to let him in her house, but she refused. He then tried to break into the home, but she called the police and he was arrested. After these arrests, Roy was evaluated by Navy psychiatrists and diagnosed with severe schizoid personality. He was given an administrative discharge from the service. In May of 1970, Roy, who was still out on bail, began stalking a female student at the San Diego State University campus. He snuck up behind her and began hitting her on the back of the head with a rock. When she fell to the ground, he began beating her head into the sidewalk while kneeling on her back. She managed to survive and Roy was arrested. He was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and sentenced to five years in prison. Because of his discharge from the Navy, which was due to psychological problems, Roy served his time at the Atascadero State Hospital. There, he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Roy was released from the hospital in 1975 after the doctors declared that he was no longer a danger to others. Just three months later, a woman was walking home in Redondo Beach, sound familiar? And Roy pulled up next to her and offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she turned him down, he got off the bike and grabbed her by the scarf, twisting it tight around her neck. Then he told her he was going to rape her and dragged her into some bushes where he did just that. She reported him to the police, but they didn't have a lot to go on until a month later when she spotted his motorcycle and wrote down the license plate number. Roy was arrested and convicted of rape and sent to the California Men's Colony in 1976. It wasn't until a year later that Larry and Roy would actually meet. They started out as casual acquaintances, but soon, Roy showed Larry how to make jewelry and the two began spending more time together. Then, Larry saved Roy from being attacked by other prisoners twice. From then on, they were close friends and began sharing more than just jewelry-making techniques. Nobody knew that this random meeting of two men in prison would turn into one of the most horrible serial killer cases in the state. It's unclear what the length of both of their sentences was, but they seemed to know that they would eventually be out. They began planning for their future once free. They both bonded over their fantasies of sexual violence, with Roy telling Larry that he was excited by a woman's fear. He enjoyed seeing the fear in their eyes as he raped them. Larry suggested that they kill the women after they sexually assaulted them to keep from getting caught. Roy didn't seem to have a problem with that. They began planning every detail of their lives after prison. They would kidnap young women between the ages of 13 and 19. 
They wanted to find seven victims, one of each age to kidnap, rape, and kill. Larry wanted to include torture, which Roy wasn't into, but as long as he got to rape them, he was fine with whatever Larry did. In yet another psychiatric evaluation of Larry conducted in 1977, the psychiatrist agreed with the previous observation of Larry and added that he was more likely to commit new crimes upon his release. Another psychiatrist added that he was a sophisticated psychopath whose prospects for successful parole were guarded at best. Larry was released on parole on October 15, 1978. Once out, he got a job at a machine shop which paid pretty well. He could have afforded to rent a nice house in a decent neighborhood, but instead he started living at the Scott Motel in Burbank. He wanted to be closer to young women who were less financially stable. He would make friends with the local teenagers and give them money, making sure he also had plenty of marijuana and beer in his room. This was part of their plan. They had planned to talk to teenage girls and find out what was the best way to lure them in, learning the lingo and figuring out what made them feel comfortable so they'd put their guard down. While Larry waited for Roy to be released from prison, he began doing the research. Roy was released on parole on January 15, 1979, and he moved in with his mother in Redondo Beach. He began working as an electrician, and soon he reconnected with his prison buddy, Larry. They picked right back up with their plans, and Larry filled him in on all the research he had done in the last few months. The two came up with very detailed plans, who their victims would be, how they would abduct them, where they would take them, and how they would dispose of their bodies. First, they focused on the how. They used their research to determine that offering a ride to a young woman was a good start, and generally, the offer of some pot would be too good to pass up. Once the target was in the vehicle, they would tape them up and gag them, but how easy would that be in a car or even a station wagon? Larry decided that he wanted a cargo van with a door on the side. If the victim turned down their offer, they could open the side door and snatch them with minimal effort. Larry purchased a silver 1977 GMC cargo van, which he named the Murder Mac. The van didn't have any windows in the cargo area, and the side door would be perfect for quick snatch jobs. They added shag carpeting inside to help soundproof it. Then they added a makeshift bed, a cooler, and a toolbox, which was filled with various tools that would be used to torture their victims. They took the van out on test runs up and down the coast. They took secret photos of women in skimpy clothes and offered rides to at least 20 young women. These women were never harmed as the pair were still doing research now that they had their van. They were testing out which methods were most successful at getting women into their van. They also hadn't picked a location to take the victims yet. That was the next decision to be made. While driving around remote areas of Southern California, they found a fire road deep in the San Gabriel Mountains, just northeast of Los Angeles. The road had a locked gate, but they were able to bust the lock and make their way into an area where nobody would be able to hear the screams of their victims. Not only was it extremely remote, but there were a number of deep canyons covered with brush that would make the perfect place to dispose of the bodies. Sure that they had the perfect plan, Larry and Roy set out on June 24, 1979 to find their first victim. When they saw Cindy Schaefer walking down the street, they pulled over and offered her a ride and some marijuana, something that their research said was the easiest way to get a young woman into their van. Then she said no. Their first victim would end up being snatched and killed in the mountains. 
For a first time, the two men were satisfied, but knew they could do better. They got that chance on July 8th when they saw a young woman who was hitchhiking accept a ride from someone in a convertible right in front of them. They took a chance and followed the car, thinking that they might not take her all the way to her destination, and they were right. Soon, the car dropped the woman off and she stuck her thumb out to catch another ride. Roy jumped into the cargo area and hid underneath the bed, and Larry pulled over to pick the woman up. 18-year-old Andrea Hall hopped into the passenger seat and thanked Larry for the ride. After Larry pulled back into traffic, he told Andrea that there were some cold drinks in a cooler in the back of the van. It was a warm July day, so Andrea accepted the offer and went in the back where she picked a soda out of the cooler and turned to get back in the passenger seat. When she did, Roy jumped out from under the bed and grabbed her. She fought with Roy for a while, but he was able to overpower her and tape her hands and legs. He put a piece of tape over her mouth, and they began their journey to the service road in the mountains. Once there, they took turns raping the young girl, and then Larry dragged her out of the van. Roy drove down to a convenience store to buy beer, while Larry began taking photos of Andrea with a Polaroid camera. He told the woman he was going to kill her and snapped a picture so he would have a photo with the look of genuine fear. Then he made Andrea beg for her life. Of course, there was nothing she could say that would save her from her ultimate fate. Larry took an ice pick and stabbed it into her ear, penetrating her brain. It didn't kill her, so he used the ice pick to stab her in the other ear. Again, it didn't kill her, and when he tried to pull it out, the handle broke off. At this point, Larry manually strangled Andrea before tossing her body into a deep ravine. On September 3rd, friends Jackie Gilliam, 15, and Jacqueline Lamp, 13, had hitchhiked to Hermosa Beach when they were spotted by Larry and Roy sitting on a bus stop. They pulled over and offered the young women a ride. The girls climbed into the van and accepted an offer of marijuana. Larry said they were going to the beach, which was only a block away, but when they turned away from the coast, Jackie and Jacqueline questioned him. He claimed that he was just going to find a place to park while they smoked the joint, but when he pulled over, Jacqueline tried to open the side door. Roy had a sack filled with small lead fishing weights, and he swung it around, hitting the girl in the head, knocking her out. Then he grabbed Jackie and began restraining her. But while he did, Jacqueline came to and did manage to slide the door open and start climbing out. But Larry rounded the front of the van and punched her in the face, knocking her back into the van. When people at a nearby tennis court looked over at the commotion, Larry told them that she was having a bad acid trip and he was taking her home. He quickly climbed back into the driver's seat and headed to the mountains while Roy taped the girls up in the back. In the isolated mountains, the men took turns raping the girls, and this time they held them captive for over 48 hours. When Larry found out that one was a virgin, he pulled out a tape recorder because he wanted a recording of him raping a virgin. For the recording, he made her play the role of his cousin, who he had apparently had a sexual fantasy about. He also made her scream in pain. Some of the time he would assist by stabbing her in the breast with an ice pick, and he tore off one of her nipples with a pair of pliers. They took turns sleeping in the van while the other kept watch, and the next day they continued their sadism. They made the girls pose for nude photos and then decided it was time to end their session. Like Andrea, Larry stabbed Jackie in both ears with an ice pick and then strangled her. Jacqueline was struck on the head with a sledgehammer by Roy while Larry strangled her. 
As she was lying on the ground afterwards, she opened her eyes and Roy began repeatedly hitting her on the head with the sledgehammer until she was dead. Both bodies were thrown off of an embankment into the brush. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. At the end of September, Shirley Sanders had come down from Oregon to visit her father in Manhattan Beach. On the 30th, she was walking along the street when Larry and Roy pulled up next to her and offered her a ride. She turned them down, but the men didn't take no for an answer, and they sprayed her with pepper spray. While blinded by the spray, Roy jumped out and pulled her into the van. This time they didn't take the woman into the mountains and began taking turns raping her. It seemed that the men had gotten too comfortable with their attacks and they let their guard down long enough for Shirley to escape. Shirley went straight to the police, but she wasn't able to identify her attackers and she hadn't been able to note the license plate of the van. Without much information to go on, the case went cold and Shirley returned to Oregon. Larry and Roy laid low for a while. Larry even moved into a different motel room just in case the police were looking for him. They were sure their last victim would have reported them to the police, but they didn't know she wasn't able to identify them. After about a month, they realized that they were in the clear and they began searching for their next victim. They would find her on October 31st. 16-year-old Shirley Ledford had attended a Halloween party in the San Fernando Valley and was hitchhiking to find a ride home. When Larry and Roy offered her a ride, she hopped in the van. They must have gotten tired of the near two-hour journey before they could begin their rape and torture because they again didn't go to the mountains. After Roy grabbed Shirley and taped her up, he took the driver's seat while Larry got into the back and turned on the tape recorder. He began slapping her and told her to say something. The recording goes on to capture the sounds of Shirley being slapped, beaten, and tortured. Larry uses a pair of pliers to damage her breasts, vagina, and anus. Eventually, the men switched places and Roy began ordering her to scream. Then, he pulled a sledgehammer out of the toolbox and slammed it into her elbow. Shirley screamed out in pain and can be heard on the audio tape saying, You broke my elbow. Then Roy goes on to hit her elbow 25 more times, repeatedly fracturing it. Shirley's last words were, Do it. Just kill me. Roy switched off the tape recorder and granted her wish. He grabbed a wire coat hanger and put it over Shirley's neck. Then he used a pair of pliers to twist it tight until she died. This time, instead of hiding the body, they decided to leave it out in the open to see what kind of reaction it would get in the media. They picked a random house in the area and laid the body in a bed of ivy in someone's front yard. The body was discovered the next morning and it was initially thought it could be a victim of Angelo Buono, the hillside strangler who had just been arrested days earlier. 
It seemed unlikely that the body would not have been discovered sooner if that was the case, and it was quickly ruled out as a possibility. Still, authorities had zero evidence to point them in the direction of who could have committed the crime. In the days leading up to the murder of Shirley Ledford, Roy couldn't contain his excitement about his new venture as a criminal mastermind. He had run into an old friend from prison named Jimmy Dalton. Roy began bragging to Jimmy about his and Larry's murders, describing in detail what they had done to the women. But Jimmy thought it was just talk to make himself look more dangerous. That was, until Shirley's body was found and the details matched the stories that Ray had told. Now, most of the stories on this channel involve a friend, family member, or even stranger who knows exactly what's going on but says absolutely nothing, especially when that person's an ex-con. But Jimmy had a conscience, and he took this information to his lawyer. The two of them went to the police, and eventually he was able to make a statement to detectives. They weren't sure that they believed the story of an ex-con with no evidence until he mentioned that they drove a silver cargo van. One of the detectives remembered that that was the same type of vehicle Shirley Sanders said her attackers were driving. It's possible that if Larry and Roy continued hiding the bodies in the canyons within the San Gabriel Mountains, they would have never been caught. Instead, their behavior got them put under surveillance by the police. An investigator also went to Oregon and showed Shirley photos that included pictures of their newly acquired suspects. She was able to pick both Larry and Roy out of the pictures. The district attorney held off on arresting the men right away so they could gather more evidence and make a stronger case. Roy again assisted in his own capture a few days later when he was caught selling marijuana while under surveillance. This being a parole violation, police had to arrest him, but this also gave them the ability to search his home without a warrant. During the search, they found hundreds of photos of women taken in the streets without their knowledge. But amongst those photos was a girl who was nude holding her hands behind her head. That photo was of Jackie Gilliam, who was currently a missing person. They also found a bracelet that belonged to Shirley Ledford. While at Roy's house, Larry called and when a detective answered the phone, he told Larry that Roy was unavailable. This must have spooked Larry because he immediately began cleaning out the van. He took photographs, cassette tapes, and tools and put them in a bag which he said he buried. Not long after, the police arrived at the Scott Motel and arrested Larry. When they interrogated him, he acted smug and told the detectives that they didn't have shit on him. Well, it's true that Larry managed to clean a lot of the incriminating evidence out of the van, but they still found a sledgehammer. Why wouldn't you get rid of that? As well as the bag of weights, a book that explained how to find police radio frequencies, and necklaces that belonged to two victims. Then investigators pressed the eject button on the cassette player in the van, and out popped a tape that would turn out to be one of the most disturbing pieces of evidence they would ever present in court. It also meant that Larry was listening to this tape as he drove around in the van. It wasn't long before Roy broke down and began confessing to their crimes. Of course, he claimed that he wasn't involved in any of the rapes or murders, he just went along with it because he was scared of Larry. Gradually, though, he admitted to more and more of the crimes. He admitted to hitting Jacqueline Lamp in the head with a sledgehammer and to using the same tool to hit Shirley Ledford repeatedly on the elbow. Roy agreed to plead guilty to five murders, testify against Larry, and assist in locating the bodies in exchange for a sentence of 45 years to life in prison. 
The first two bodies were not successfully found. Roy pointed out where he believed they had tossed the bodies of Cindy Schaefer and Andrea Hall, but search teams weren't able to find anything. On February 9th, though, they did find the skeletal remains of Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp. Jackie's skull still had an ice pick embedded in it, and Jacqueline's skull had several dents in it from being hit with a sledgehammer. Larry pleaded not guilty and began a defense strategy, claiming Roy had committed all the crimes. He took the stand in his own defense, where he claimed that some of the girls were hired to take photos, and in response to the audio of Shirley Ledford's torture, which caused many people in the courtroom to leave so they could cry or even vomit, Larry claimed that she was paid to act out what was on the tape. Then she, along with all the other victims, had been left with Roy who ended up killing them. The defense tried to paint Larry in a better light by calling one of his neighbors from the Scott Motel to testify. She was a young pregnant woman who had been friends with Larry and she admitted under oath that he had been really nice to her. Then she told the jury about being in his van, driving somewhere when they got into an argument and he pulled out a gun and told her the only reason she was still alive was because she was pregnant. She jumped out of the van and cut off contact with him. So that didn't work out so well for the defense. The jury would go on to find Larry guilty on all charges. During his trial for the death penalty, the jury came back in less than a minute with a unanimous decision for execution. Lawrence Bittaker sat on death row for the rest of his life and, though he agreed to some interviews, he never admitted to the murders or gave the locations of Cindy and Andrea's bodies. In 2018, a criminologist had been writing to Larry for five years when he finally agreed to talk to her. Over the next few years, during talks with her, he finally admitted to the murders, though many times he tried to minimize the acts by saying things like, oh, they didn't fight much. They were like, well, this is happening. We don't like it, but we're here. We may as well make the best of it. Things that proved he went to his grave as a horrible fucking monster. In those interviews, he tried to claim that a psychiatrist had told him that he was no longer a sociopath, which is complete and utter bullshit. While talking to her, Larry mentioned that he had a high school girlfriend, Mary, who was blonde with blue eyes. She was Catholic and always wore a cross. It was an interesting development that that description matched many of the victims, some of whom he made wear a cross when he sexually assaulted them. He revealed that he used to also go hiking in the San Gabriel Mountains, where he would eventually do his killing. Lawrence Bittaker died on December 13, 2019 of natural causes. He was 79 years old. Before he died, he drew a map of where Cindy Schaefer and Andrea Hall should be, both locations at least a mile away from where Roy thought they were. There's been no word on whether or not any remains have been located. Roy Norris died on February 24, 2020, also of natural causes. He was 72 years old. There were more victims to their crimes than just the murder and rape victims. Many of the people who were involved in the case had to overcome serious trauma due to what they had experienced. The prosecutor said that for two years after the case, he would have recurring nightmares in which he would be rushing to Bittaker's van to prevent harm coming to the girls, but would always get there too late. Paul Bynum, the chief investigator of the murders, committed suicide in December of 1987. He was 39 years old. In a 10-page suicide note, Paul specifically referred to the murders as haunting him and of his fear they may be released from prison. 
He wrote that he hoped that by killing himself, Lawrence Bittaker would spare his family if he were ever released. Someone who induces nightmares. If you can't call that person a monster, who can you? If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now CERTA. Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CERTAIreland.ie This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.